0: Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, so episode nine, um, we've seen Jesus in Mark 7 confronting the traditions of the Pharisees and doing some healing in remote areas and healing a deaf man in kind of a surprising
1: way. Uh, we'll see another surprising healing in Mark 8 yeah, this week as well. it seems to be a recurring theme. Um, I'll just go ahead and make a comment. I do have a minor cold. It is not the coronavirus. Yeah. It is simply just a common cold. So if you hear that in my voice, I apologize. I'll just be shaking in my boots over here. Okay. <laughs> you're right. so we'll just do the elbow bump. Right? There you go. Yeah, that'll work. There it is.
0: All right, so we are in Mark chapter 8. We're beginning in verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, if you're following along. Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha.
1: Story sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? It sure does.
0: Deja vu. I mean, I grew up kind of thinking that they were the same story. I did too. I I made the same mistake.
1: 5,000, 4,000, bread, fish. It sounds awfully familiar. I, I mean, I still remember the time where I sat down and read through the gospel of Mark in one sitting. And I looked at chapter six and I looked at chapter eight and I was like, Whoa, it happened twice. Yeah. That's really cool. And we're going to see in just a minute that
0: Jesus will mention both of these. I mean, this wasn't like an oversight or a mistake of the author. I mean, Jesus does this, this miracle on multiple occasions and it's a little bit different here. Um, I mean, we still have great crowds following him. You'll remember at the end of chapter seven, After he heals this deaf and mute man, he tells him not to spread it. But the more he tells him, the more zealously they proclaim it. And so there's still, I mean, Jesus is kind of getting mobbed by these crowds of
1: people, understandably. Yeah, and uh, another similar thing you see with the 4,000 and the 5,000 in verse 2, it says that Jesus said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. This is a very similar situation. He was like the sheep without a shepherd. Or they were like the sheep without the shepherd. Jesus had compassion on them because of that. Mm-hmm. And so
0: he again asked the disciples, uh, you know, here's what we need to do. I have compassion on them. Uh, I, I don't want to send them away. And the disciples, again... You're expecting, hey, wait a minute. We've been here before. But they're like, how are we going to do this? How can we feed people in this desolate place? And once again, Jesus, they're focused on what they don't have. Jesus says, okay, what do you have? They're like, well, we've got seven loaves. And so he has the crowd sit down on the ground. And I mean, wow, it's just walking through the same story. I mean, there's seven loaves instead of five loaves and two fish. 4,000 instead of 5,000. But I think we're intended to see like, okay, this is the same thing, but the disciples seem to react in the same way that they did the first time.
1: Yeah. They, they panicked the same exact way in a carbon copy situation, right? right? As they did the first time, even though it all worked out the first time. Yeah. And so they get to the
0: end of it. Um, and nothing happens immediately, but Jesus is going to really teach the lesson of this in the next account. Um, Anything else through verse 1-10? through 10? No,
1: I think that's good. We'll get to some of the applications of that in just a second when we read the next section. Yeah. And again, seven baskets full of leftovers. This yes. That's huge. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and read verses 11-21. through 21. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. And When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Yeah, I think that's the way they probably would have answered that. Yeah, I think so, too. I always, every time I read it, I have to read it that way. Yeah. They're like kids, man. Mm-hmm. They know that Jesus, they have been through this before, and yet they flaked. Yeah. So, introducing this, the Pharisees come up,
0: and they're asking for a sign, but it's clearly not because Jesus hasn't been doing signs. I mean, at this point, if you're reading the gospel, you're like, what do you mean, give him a sign? Like, What more can he do than he's already done? And so they're trying to test him. And in verse twelve, again, this is interesting, he he sighed deeply in his spirit. I mean, I just think this is that why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so right after that episode, they're in the boat, they're going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they only have one loaf. So we've had the feeding of the 5,000, we've had the feeding of the 4,000, and now we have the feeding of the 12 <laughs> with one loaf.
1: Yeah, which is reasonable. Right. 12 people is a pretty reasonable amount of people. 5,000, 4,000, that's a crazy amount of people. 12, right. that's, that's reasonable. And so
0: Jesus tells them this little parable, like kind of a one-sentence parable. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Yeah. And of course they're like, oh no. Jesus is mad because we forgot the bread. <laughs> and this is where Jesus, I mean, understandably, he, he lays into them a little bit. Jesus is perfectly patient, but he also knows when they need a rebuke. And so, he, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Uh, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And then he recalls, remember the 5,000? How many baskets? Twelve. The 4,000, how many baskets? Seven. Do you not yet understand? And Mark doesn't give us the connecting all the dots here. But clearly Jesus is expecting the disciples to remember the miracles that have happened
1: and to start to learn who Jesus is. When Jesus delivers us through experiences, that is supposed to create within us more faith and trust and belief in Jesus. And it is kind of comical when you read it like this. You know, I've read this with people and they kind of laugh out loud sometimes at this because it is kind of funny. Like, how do you guys not realize that you've literally been through this same exact situation? But isn't that exactly what we do? We have a carbon copy situation that we've been in in the past where the Lord delivered us out of it. And when we get in that situation, we doubt the Lord. And we say, well, I don't know what to do about this situation. And God, what he wants for us and what Jesus wants for us is to learn from those past experiences to produce faith within us so that we can have trust in the Lord in the next next experience. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And here he's trying to teach them about the Pharisees.
0: I mean, he spent the last chapter rebuking their traditions and their hypocrisy that their worship is vain. And now he's saying, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We, we saw Herod back in chapter six, I believe. Yes. The, and the the Herodians. Yeah. yeah. And so here he's trying to use leaven as, as a little parable that a little hypocrisy or a little false teaching or whatever will go a long way. Yeah. Uh, like, like leaven spreads through a lump of dough and, and causes it to rise. Um, watch out for this dangerous teaching and attitude yeah. of the Pharisees. So this
1: That's is true. a really important, important lesson that, that Christ is trying to get across to his disciples, but it's being missed by them because they're still hung up on something physical. Mm -hmm. That's right. So this really sets the stage perfectly for the next
0: miracle that Jesus does. And this miracle confused me for the longest time. Oh, me me too. Until you start to see it in in its context. And this is why it's so important to read the Gospels individually uh, because it helps us see the purpose of this. Um, So let's read uh, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not
1: even enter the village. Okay, so Jesus heals a blind man, but he kind of does it in an interesting way. Yeah, did he like mess up the first time? Yeah, (laughs) you know, they take this blind man to Jesus and Jesus, after spitting on his eyes, laying his hands on him, he asks him a question. Do you see anything? And what's the guy's response? Yeah. I mean, I
0: don't know how if he how he knew what trees looked like, but he's like, I see men, but not clearly. They're like trees
1: walking. Yeah. So he's kind of describing what he kind of can see, but it's pretty clear. He cannot see clearly. He can kind of see a little bit, but he can't see everything. Yeah. And even for a blind man, he knows that, I don't think this is all the vision is supposed to be. I'm lacking something here. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus goes back to him laid his hands on his eyes, looked intently, and he was able to see everything clearly. What in the world is going on here, Stephen? Yeah. So Jesus, I I think, again, I kind of grew up thinking,
0: like, did Jesus like just mess up the first time that he like spit on his eyes and did this? I mean, that's already weird, but like, man, when has Jesus ever done a miracle that didn't work all the way the first time? Right. I, I think that this is very intentional of Jesus that he is teaching his disciples a lesson in this healing that he's performing and kind of making a lesson out of it because the disciples see Jesus a little bit clearly. Yeah. They have some idea of who
1: he is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Right. And we, we know that fact, Yeah. but we don't know exactly what that means. Right. And so Jesus, as just illustrated,
0: they've seen him feed the 5,000 but they still don't understand when he feeds the 4,000. Like they see him clearly, but they don't see him clearly enough yet. They don't really have a grasp of who he is, even though they've been with him for a while now. And what's cool about this is this is going to continue right into the next context. But I think that Jesus' healing of this blind man illustrates our own spiritual journey. That there is a time where we're blind. We don't have any idea of what's going on spiritually. We need help. But then we come to Jesus and we start to see a little more clearly. And I mean, man, compared to being blind, it's great. But we need to be very careful that we don't stop with just seeing men like trees walking. We need to keep coming back to Jesus until we can see him completely clearly. And until we can see everything else completely clearly. Like we, we, we've been blind. I mean, as, you know, the hymn Amazing Grace, quoting from John 9, I was blind, but now I see. But sometimes there's this middle ground of like, I can see, but everything's a little fuzzy. Um, So we're going to see this illustrated really well with the disciples in this chapter.
1: Yeah, so let's go ahead and read verses um, 27 down to verse 33. Got this, Stephen? Sure.
0: And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God,
1: but on the things of man. All right. So this is a really, really important section of Mark. Jesus goes out with the disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And, as Jesus will often do when he's just kind of one on one with his disciples, he picks their brain. He wants them to answer some questions, and Jesus is the master teacher. He will often do this. He will answer questions or get them to think through things by asking them questions and the question he has here for them is, "Who do people say that I am?" Yeah, and there's various
0: levels of people seeing men like trees walking. Yeah. <laughs> they, they see a little bit okay, he's a good guy, he's a prophet. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Uh, maybe he's Elijah. Yeah, Elijah or, never
1: died. So maybe Elijah came back and he's Jesus or something like right. that. And so like, they're like, okay, he's like a good guy. They're not thinking he's bad. But this is pretty wildly
0: different ideas about like, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. I don't know. And then Jesus asked them a second question. But who do you say that I am? And I just want to pause on that for a minute because those are two questions that come up pretty frequently for us.
1: We live in a world. Where people, well, who do people say that Jesus is? Some say, you know, he's just a, a really nice guy that was part of history, had some good things to say, but he wasn't really like the Messiah or from God. He was just a super cool guy.
0: Yeah. I mean, some people say, like, well, he didn't even exist or like, and of course, there's just all sorts of different things. Well, some people say this about Jesus. Some people say that about Jesus. Some people say Jesus accepts this teaching. Some people say, oh, no, Jesus doesn't accept that. And so that's an important question is to say, well, who do people say that I am? But at the end of the day, the second question, who do you say that I am? That's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. Yes. Is who is Jesus to me? And not not just like a, well, who's my personal Jesus? But like, when I encounter Jesus in scripture, do I see him clearly? Who is he? Because if he really is the son of God, if he is the Christ, that has implications for my life. Yes. Yes. And this has implications for the disciples here. So he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And good old
1: Peter. I appreciate Peter here. Peter's going to go from a real high to a real low, real fast. Yep. And he answers correctly. Yep. You are the Christ. Remember, we talked about that in the first podcast. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. You're the one the Old Testament prophesied about, Jesus. You're the guy. Yep. And he's right, 100%. And Jesus, again, there's a lot of silencing here. He says, don't tell anybody about him. I
0: suspect he doesn't want people to tell others that he's the Christ because they clearly don't understand what that means right. yet, as evidenced by this next story. So right after Peter saying, you are the Christ, this is exactly right, beautiful confession. Then he begins to tell them the son of man is going to suffer and be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed And after three days rise again. And I love that Mark notes, and he said this plainly, like there's no parable going on here. There's no figurative language. Hey guys, this is what's going to happen to me. But Peter, even though he knows that Jesus is the Christ in his mind, that's not what's going to happen to the anointed. That's not what's going to happen to the king. You're going to win. You're going to, you're not going to be killed over the, and so he, I appreciate this. He doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. So he takes him
1: aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? Oh, man. The text says that Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Yeah. And I think the idea of get behind me is like, get behind me and follow.
0: That like, Peter, you think you've got a clearer idea of who I am than I do. And so you, you're kind of getting ahead of me here get behind me. And he calls him Satan. I don't think because like Satan has possessed Peter or something, but that Peter is letting Satan use him in that moment
1: to be a stumbling block for Jesus. It's a, it's a temptation. And I mean, we read in the other gospel accounts about Jesus's temptations. It says that Satan will come back at an opportune time. You know, I've heard it stated Satan comes in the form of a friend here. You know, it is not God's interest for Jesus not to go to the cross but that's man's best interest. Mm-hmm. It is best for Jesus to go to the cross so that men can be forgiven. And Jesus knows that. And he knows what's best for Satan is for him not to go to the cross. And Peter is trying to tell him that that's not necessary.
0: Yes. And so Peter, I mean, has gone from you are the Christ and Jesus, in at least in Matthew's gospel, other places will say like, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for saying this. But now in the very next account, Get behind me, Satan. I mean, wow. Uh, you got to appreciate Peter. He's going to speak his mind. But Peter reveals that there's a- another level of misunderstanding here. Some people see Jesus very unclearly. Well, he's John or Elijah or one of the prophets. Peter sees Jesus a little more clearly. You're the Christ. Yep, you're right. But when Jesus says, I'm going to be a crucified Christ, Peter doesn't get, he doesn't see that clearly yet. And so what follows here is actually Jesus having kind of a regroup, kind of a power. Like, okay, guys, time out. Like, let's regroup here. Let's talk about what it means to follow me. Because you guys don't understand. You, you're seeing men like trees walking. You're not seeing clearly lit yet. So so let's let's talk about this.
1: Yeah, sure. So let's read verses 34 of Mark 8. And we're going to read just a little bit into chapter 9, verse 1. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, And said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation The son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So this is a really definitive moment
0: in Jesus teaching. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples. He wants everybody to hear this. And he says, if you want to come after me, there's three things you need to do. You need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And man, I mean, you could just spend the whole rest of the episode right there.
1: There's so much to meditate on in those three statements. Let's go ahead and start with the first one. Deny yourself. What does that mean, practically speaking? Well, I think it means forget what your will is. And start setting your mind on what God's will is for you. Yeah. When you have a moment where you want to give into your flesh and into your desires, you're going to deny that urge and do what God would rather have you do instead.
0: And this is the very opposite of what our culture is telling us. Express yourself. Find yourself. Be yourself. Listen to that inner voice that tells you what to do. Right. And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't find our personality and in, within confidence. serving Christ. Yeah. But... Jesus says the fundamental call of the gospel is to put yourself last. It's not about who I am or what I want. It is about denying myself and my impulses and my desires and submitting those to King Jesus, who knows better for me what I
1: need than I know. Yeah, who knows better what the creature needs but the creator that made us. Exactly. And so then Jesus says something that is really hard for us to appreciate,
0: 2000 years after this, he says, take up your cross. And we look at that and say, oh yeah, like, you know, oh, that's just their cross to bear. You know, it's become this phrase in our culture that kind of means, well, everybody's kind of got their hardships and
1: things they have to deal with. I have a 15 minute work to commute. That's just kind of the way it is. It's my cross to bear. Yeah. We've kind of used that flippantly. Right. But the idea here is pick up your AK-47, you know, pick up your gun. Like you have got to put yourself to death if you want to follow me. You are going to your own execution now if you're going to follow after me. Of course, he's not talking literal here where there's not encouraging self-harm or anything like that. But it is that fundamental idea of your will dying and instead you're going to choose to do God's will. Right.
0: And I mean, we, the symbol of the cross has become kind of, ornamental. Now, you know, people wear like pretty crosses on their necklaces or whatever. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But we, we've lost in a lot of ways, culturally, what the cross would have meant to them. It was the execution of a criminal, a, the torture and death of someone who had just broken the law and was at the bottom of society. It was shameful for someone to die on a cross. And so when he's saying, take up your cross and follow me, He's saying, you gotta be ready to go through pain and humiliation and rejection because that's what that's what I'm gonna be. And again, that was so contrary to their idea of the Messiah, their idea of the Christ. A crucified Christ was like the farthest thing from their imagination at that time. And it can be far from our imagination too, is we think of Christianity sometimes as a means to just make yourself better. The Bible's kind of this help, self-help book. Um, Oh, your life's going to be so much better if you just believe in Jesus and and, and come to him and he'll take care of you. And, And yes, he will take care of you. But if we follow a crucified Christ, there's going to be things about our life that get worse. There's going to be things that get harder, but because it's the truth and because it leads to glory at the end. Yes. And so that's what Jesus is going to say, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And they don't fully realize yet that following him includes the cross, but then the resurrection and glory. But if we're going to follow in Jesus'
1: footsteps, we have to take up our cross. He says, if anyone's going to follow me, this is what you've got to do. Going along with that, Stephen, I, my mind goes back to some of the things Jesus talked about back in chapter 7 about what comes out of the heart. you know, Thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders. What Jesus is doing, he is giving a list of, of sinful things that we should not be involved with. So if we're going to put ourselves to death, if we're going to put to death our desires, the next time we're tempted to go out and and act out sexually in a sexually immoral way, we got to stop ourselves. That's the idea of denying yourself. So I think it's really important for everyone that's listening and me and you to think about practical ways we can take up that cross every single day. Mm -hmm. What am I going to stop doing today in order to follow Jesus better? That's right. And I love that there's the two negatives, deny yourself.
0: Take up your cross to die on it, but then follow me. There's this positive as well, of like, I'm going to follow as closely to the example of Jesus as I possibly can. And that's why we have the Gospels for us, is we see the example of Jesus, the way he treated other people, the way he both confronted wickedness and took care of the downtrodden and the those who were hurting. Jesus is the perfect example for us. And so we follow him through his suffering, through his compassion, through his taking
1: care of other people, and this is the picture of what the Christian life is like. And it's a beautiful thing that when the Lord requests and tells us that we have to put our old selves to death, and when we do that, he gives us a new purpose. He gives us a new identity. We're not left with nothing to do. In fact, we're left with a new mission that we can accomplish by following Jesus Christ. That's right. And so he says in verse 35, whoever would save his
0: life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So it's like, don't live for yourself anymore, but lose your life for my sake and the gospels. And I don't think he's just talking about becoming a martyr or being killed for your faith, but it would include that. But it's even more just laying down your life every day. If we live this life for ourselves, trying to save our life, that's where we're going to lose it. But when we finally let go and devote our lives to the Lord, that's when we find our life. And he points out in verse 36 and 37, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And so he just points out that if you get into the rat race of life and get more stuff, more fame, more money, whatever, you can gain the whole world. But if you lose your soul at the
1: end, what's the point? Yeah, the world is going to end. The things in this world perish all the time but your soul that's everlasting why why would you spend your lifetime losing your soul in the grand scheme of eternity just for something that is temporary is the point jesus is trying to make give your life to him that's what he wants mm-hmm. and so he he gives us a little glimpse of some things to come at the end of
0: this he says in verse 38 whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He's going to be a crucified Christ, but he's also going to be a glorified Christ. And granted, this is going to spill over into our next episode. where We talk about the transfiguration. Uh, They're going to see Jesus even more clearly um, for a moment in the next chapter but you think about this that we have to be willing to own jesus if we're ashamed of him now he'll be ashamed of us on the last day i mean that that's sobering to think about you're you're being there before god at the end and your name is called and jesus just blushes and and turns away and then the opposite is also true. If we confess Jesus before people, he'll confess us before his father in heaven. And there's going to come a day when this crucified Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, is going to come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And there's going to come a day, I think one is talking about a little bit of a sooner event, where he says, in this generation, you know, there's some here who are not even going to die until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. I don't think that's talking about the final coming, but that's talking about the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Sure. When he, Jesus is proclaimed king in like Acts chapter 2 mm-hmm, is one mm-hmm. example of it. Um, but the, that's going to happen in that generation, um, just a, a few
1: years, or I'm not sure exactly how far we are in here, but within
0: you know a short amount of
1: time. Yes, and just uh, one last thing about the idea of being ashamed of Christ. I don't think that is exclusive to just You know, I think we always want to run to that example. If someone points a gun to your head, you know, are you going to say, I'm not a believer or I believe in Jesus? I think a more practical way to look at that is when you go to make a decision when when you're tempted, do you fall? What do you think about the Lord? Our actions, whenever we're being tempted, will tell Jesus whether or not we're ashamed of him. Mm -hmm. And so that's a practical way I think we can look at this. When we are tempted, are we going to choose to follow Christ? Or are we going to choose to follow our our selfish desires? Right. And in social
0: situations where we have opportunity to talk about Jesus with others, talk about, well, why are you different? Why are you avoiding that? Or why are you doing this good thing? We need to be doing it with the actions, but also saying, hey, this is because God has shown me what's
1: good and I want to live for him. And scriptures like this about denying yourself, taking up your cross, not being ashamed of Jesus are just a clear indication that there is no such thing as nominal Christianity we got to be serious about this if we want to follow the Lord. That's right. So next week, we're Stephen already mentioned it a little bit, we're going to be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. And we'll also get to talk about some more confusing things for the disciples yeah. as Jesus deals with them. And he'll also warn them again about his death and his resurrection. Mm-hmm. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast today, please subscribe, rate, give us some
0: reviews. Uh, that helps us get in touch with more people. Uh, If you'd like to be part of our community Bible readings, um, please look us up on capitalcitychristians.com or you can reach out to us personally uh, at 717-585-0949. We'd love to talk with you and be any help we can be to you or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.